0: Section 8 of Modern Russian Literature by D. S. Mirsky This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The New Age In the work of Andreev and his associates, the great realistic tradition had come to an end, but a new movement, which had gradually and imperceptibly grown up within the last decade, was there to replace it. The new movement rejected the tradition of yesterday and sought at first for guidance abroad. But it soon realized its connection with older narrative traditions, hitherto neglected. In its first stages it canonized Dostoevsky, Tchutchev, Fet, Baratinsky, later on Leskov, Leontiev, and Grigoriev, It gave fresh life to the withered cult of Pushkin and of Gogol, and contributed to the general revival of pre-realistic Russian literature, a revival which is still in full swing. Though it is evident that it was a single, if very complex, movement that changed the face of Russian literature between 1894 and 1907, it is difficult to define it in a few words it may be best of all defined negatively as a revolt against orthodox, quote intelligentsiaism. This orthodox intelligentsiaism expressed itself in the rationalistic social idealism of the populists and in the absolute sway of realism in fiction. The new movement was at first strongly anti-political and individualistic, It was also aesthetic its aestheticism was romantic rather than classic and valued originality above perfection the first symptom of the new age was a violent assertion of individualism supported by a cult of nietzsche another symptom was the gradual reversal of the respective positions of prose and verse of matter and manner the new age became an age of poetry and found its highest expression in the great poets of the 20th century. But it first found expression in a series of notable writers, who, for want of a better word, may be called religious philosophers. The first of these to win public attention was Dmitri Sergeyevich Mereshkovsky, born 1865, a remarkably versatile writer who had begun as a quote-unquote civic poet in the days of Natsun. In the 90s he headed the new movement, then above all things anti-civic, and preached a new Nietzschean paganism. Then he reverted to a kind of Slavophile orthodoxy which became about 1905 revolutionary mysticism in the mask of a quote, Christianity of the Third Testament. End quote. Such it has remained since, though the revolutionary element has been greatly abated by a strong disapproval of Bolshevism. Equally versatile is Merishkovsky in the form of his writings. He has written creditable verse, good novels, excellent and less excellent, criticism, bad plays, political, mystical and metaphysical essays. In the 90s and in the early years of the new century, he was first of all the champion of culture, the effective reviver of universal artistic and religious values of antiquity and the Renaissance. Between 1894 and 1902, he was the mouthpiece of European culture in Russia, something like a Russian Matthew Arnold. His novels, The Death of Gods, Julian the Apostate, and The Forerunner, Leonardo da Vinci, though entirely lacking in creative force, were good, civilizing work. Still better is his book on Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, 1901-1902, to 1902, which marks the summit of his achievement. It is not a creative or original book, but it is very clever. It typifies in the best manner the attitude of the cultured reader of his generation towards these two great men. It is his best book by far, and one of the best works of criticism in the language. All he wrote afterwards, including the novels Alexander I and The 14th December, is more or less worthless. He became a victim to a self-made system of rhetorical antithesis, which he developed in a book after book with depressing monotony and hysterical volubility. A more pleasing writer than Merezhkovsky himself is his wife, who writes under her maiden name of Zinaida Hippius, born 1867. Her novels and stories are not worth much, but she was the most brilliant journalist and polemist of the new school. Her criticism is intensely subjective, and more often than not very unkind. But her principal achievement is her poetry, the most personal and intellectual poetry of the age. Her best poems are quaint little myths, Variations on the Dostoevskian theme of eternity as quote, a bathhouse with cobwebs in the corners. End quote. Infinitely more significant than Merezhkovsky was Vasily Vasilievich Rozanov, eighteen fifty-six to nineteen nineteen, whose first important work. The Legend of the Great Inquisitor, appeared in 1890 and ushered in that remarkable series of Dostoevskian commentaries, which became such an outstanding feature of Russian literature towards 1900. Rozanov was a Slavophile by tradition, but he developed his wonderful personality along entirely original lines. He was mainly a journalist, and, like Chekhov, owed much of his material success to Suvorin. He wrote on every variety of subject, but his favorite themes were the inadequacy of the historical church and the problems of family, marriage, and sex. He evolved a perfectly original style, unfettered by conventional rules of composition, and extraordinarily racy. It reaches its perfection in the wonderful books of his last years, Alone with Myself, Uyedinенная, Fallen Lees, and The Apocalypse of the Russian Revolution. They consist of disconnected fragments of a singularly intimate, candid, and unconventional nature. These books are probably the most genuine instance of a quote-unquote heart-laid bare their strangely intimate subjects will probably make them forever a sealed book to foreigners. The style, studied with parentheses and quotations, full of allusions and associations, and suggestive rather of an intimate bedroom whisper than of the printed page, contribute to make them a sort of esoteric taboo book, open only to his countrymen. Equally original in thought, if not in style, is Leo Shestov, born 1866. His book, like some of Rozanov's and Merezhkovsky's, take the form of commentaries on Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, or some other great writer. But they are not criticism, they are moral philosophy. His style is largely modeled on the excellent example of Tolstoy's didactic writings, But contrary to the constant, quote, thus far and no farther" end quote, of Tolstoy, Shostov has the courage to take the extreme consequences of his thought, which is entirely dominated by a campaign against philosophical idealism. He reverses the saying of Euripides that, quote, if the gods do anything shameful, they are not gods, end quote, and in one of his last essays, A Thousand and One Nights, reveals his belief in a God who, though intensely human, is beyond the sway of human morality, the God of the Old Testament. Shostov is a past master in the art of sarcasm, and he exercises it with elegance, but without pity, against all those who, like Socrates, Spinoza, or the moralist Tolstoy, essay to build a system of ethics based on rational idealism. He is in tune with those thinkers who saw the irrational roots of the moral universe and fiercely looked down into the abyss, with St. Paul, Luther, Pascal, Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, and the irrational Tolstoy who wrote the frightening fragment The Memoirs of a Madman. Rozanov and Shostov are the most original and, from the literary point of view, the most significant of the quote-unquote religious philosophers or quote-unquote seekers after God. Here is not the place to trace a history of the ideas, which tended towards 1910 to converge towards a more strict Christian orthodoxy. The principal names in this connection are those of Nicholas Berdyaev and Father Sergius Bulgakov, Notable thinkers, but comparatively insignificant writers. A still more notable thinker is Father Paul Florensky. His Pillar and Foundation of Truth is one of the profoundest and subtlest books ever written on questions of religion, but is very difficult reading and will greatly perplex an unprepared reader. There was more literary promise in the late Dmitri Boldirev, who died a prisoner of the Bolsheviks in 1920. He was a psychologist by training, but his political articles written in 1917 prove him to have been a stylist of extraordinary originality, who wrote a Russian that has not its equal for vigor and raciness. The revival of Russian poetry dates from about 1894, It was the work of a school of poets who were called symbolists by themselves and decadents by their enemies. The initial impulse came, as literary impulses so often have in Russia, from France. It proceeded from Baudelaire, Verlaine and the poets of 1885. But after its initial stages, Russian symbolism early became a thoroughly national school, which found its masters in Tutchev and Thet and other classics and developed along thoroughly Russian lines. It was a romantic and lyrical school which put quote-unquote music before all things. It was also metaphysical and delighted in subjects of eternal and universal significance. The predominance of the musical over the logical element and the predilection for big themes as well as a deliberate search after originality and new modes of expression makes the work of the symbolists often quote caviar to the general end quote who charged them with obscurity and preciosity the initiators of the movement and the chief representatives of this initial foreign or cosmopolitan phase were constantine Balmont born 1867, and Valery Bryusov, born 1873. They were at first believed to be great poets, but it is rather difficult at present to revive the enthusiasm that was felt for them 20 years ago. Balmont, in his early work, 1894-1904, to 1904, displayed a beautiful gift of song, but even at its best his poetry lacks all finer shades of expression. And, as to his later writings, they are an ocean of empty and turgid garrulity. Brusov's masters were Edgar Allan Poe, the French Parnassians and Symbolists, and the Latin poets of the 4th century. His poetry is entirely formal, but like Belmont's it lacks taste and distinction, it is tawdry. One of his admirers unsuspectingly hit the point when he called it quote, gilt bronze. End quote. The verse of both Balmont and Brusov, besides being crude and tasteless, sounds un-Russian and vaguely translated. Their audience was at first delighted by the exotic novelty of their numbers but they were forsaken when more genuine goods appeared on the market. The greatest of the older generation of symbolists were Innocent Aninsky, 1856-1909, Theodor Sologub, the pseudonym of THK Teternikov, born 1863, and Vyacheslav Ivanov, born 1866. All these were great craftsmen and perfect artists. They restored to Russia the high standard that had been lost since the golden age of Pushkin. Aninsky, in short lyrics of immense concision and elaborately complex structure, gave expression to a modern soul, disillusioned and fastidious, akin in a sense to Chekhov's but more sensitive and nervous. His poems are difficult and obscure, not because he could not express himself more clearly, but because in its great concentration his art dispenses with the links and bridges of continuous speech. His lyrics are quintessential extracts of emotion, like those perfumes to the making of each ounce of which go pounds of rose leaves. Vyacheslav Ivanov, Vyacheslav the Magnificent, as he had been called by Shostov, is a great master of ornate and metaphysical poetry. He is a man of immense culture, steeped in all the lore of Christendom and of antiquity. His poetry is Alexandrian in its abundant scholarship, overloaded with the legacy of centuries, but rather Pindaric in the wealth of his beautiful and pregnant diction. Though saturated with Hellenism, it does not sound foreign for the treasures of Greek diction were naturalized in Russia by the Slavonic liturgy and the Slavonic Bible. Sologup, born 1863, is better known in England than either anyansky or Ivanov, and owes this relative popularity to his prose writings. But he is primarily a poet, and his poetry is of a very high order. He is an austere and forbidding poet. His verse is apparently simple, his vocabulary is limited, his tone is subdued, and there is nothing striking in him, but the perfection and polish to which he brings his verse is amazing and incomparable. Unlike, though it is, to the poetry of the Golden Age, it has the same classical perfection. Sologup is a single-minded poet, His one theme is the opposition of the calm beauty of eternity to the evil diversity of life. His philosophy is Manichaean, and his cult of eternity merges in a cult of death. He hates the creative divinity. Its emanation is the sun, the symbol of all the curse of life. This hatred of the Creator easily merges into a Satanism, Sologup is the only one of the older symbolists to have written great prose, which I will discuss a little farther on in connection with other novelists. These older masters were followed by a younger generation, whose greatest names are Alexander Bloch, 1880-1921, and Andrei Bely, born 1880. Bloch is altogether the greatest poet of the whole age, the greatest literary genius of the last quarter of a century. Though less of a craftsman than Ivanov or Sologub, he was made of the same stuff as the great romantic poets of the early 19th century. He is akin to Shelley and Lermontov in the powerful divine breath which animated him. He was essentially a genius not only in size but in mind. His poetry is mystical. In his early lyrics, he lives a life of mystic unity with a quote-unquote beautiful lady, who is the Sophia of Solovyov's vision, or the Weltseele of German Romanticism. This early poetry is nebulous and diaphanous to the point of seeming non-existent. It is of the stuff that dreams are made of. But before long he lost his faith in his mystic visions, All his later poetry, from 1905 onwards, is like Heine's, the expression of one continuous dissonance between the real and the ideal. It is as musical, and even more so than his early lyrics, but it becomes more solid, more material, more realistic. The whole of life enters into his ken. Passionate longing, blind passion, and bitter irony— become the dominant notes of his poetry. His world is akin to Dostoevsky's world of antithesis, and also to the dreadful waste of despair and emptiness in which lived Andreev. But unlike Andreev, Bloch is a great artist. His words are always fresh and new, alive with the breath of genius. In his best lyrics, Bloch strikes the note of cosmic grandeur and tragical majesty in the first line, and sustains it to the last. For sweep, and for what the French call souffle, he has no equal among recent poets, not only in Russia. After losing his faith in his mystic lady, he thought at one time to have found a new faith in Russia. Much of his best poetry between 1908 and 1916 is inspired by his passionate love for his country. When the revolution came, it dazzled and stunned Bloch by its enormous elemental force, and he thought he saw in it the final and essential expression of the ardent and impulsive soul of Russia. Under this impression, he wrote his greatest poem, The Twelve, Here his power of expression reaches to a pitch which makes it a poem of almost superhuman power. It is at once musical in structure and realistic in subject. His supreme mastery of rhythm far surpasses the ordinary limits assigned to poetic expression and transcends the rational element of speech. But the words he uses are the slang of the streets And the pictures he evokes, it is the story of twelve red guardsmen bullying the bourgeois in the first days of the Bolshevist triumph, are boldly, even crudely, real. The perfect fusion of the musical and realistic element gives the poem its unique and supreme position. But Bloch's genius was essentially feminine and passive. And after this last fitful achievement, inspired by the breath of the revolution, there followed in him a reaction of complete impotence and black despair. He lost his momentary faith in the revolution, and his last years were spent in a state of terrible gloom and emptiness. He saw the gradual ruin of Petersburg and Russia round him and died of heart disease in August 1921. Andrey Bely, born 1880, pseudonym of B. N. Bugaev. The contemporary and parallel of Bloch is also a mystic, philosopher, poet, novelist, anthroposophist. Footnote. Belly was from 1911 to 1916 one of the most faithful adepts of Rudolf Steiner and an inmate of his theosophical establishment near Baal. And a footnote. Dreamer and Charlatan. He has not created anything supreme in poetry, but his novels, of which I will speak farther on, are among the most wonderful production of the Russian 20th century. He is a man of extraordinary biographical interest, and his personality will be an inexhaustible mine of interest to the future biographers he has written a biographical work of first-class rank in his amazing reminiscences of Bloch. The poetry of the symbolists as a whole had, for all its great qualities, substantial drawbacks. It was feminine, passive, more receptive than active. It was also, on the whole, too exclusively musical, and the appeal of its metaphysical subject matter apart from its occasional obscurity, was not sufficiently broad. With the exception of Bloch, the symbolists, even the very emotional and human Aninsky, remain rather poetry for a minority. Besides their philosophy, their mentality was essentially unhealthy and unproductive and in this sense they well deserved the appellation of decadence, though as masters of their art, they were the very reverse. The symbolist triumph was followed by a reaction. It found expression in two divergent movements. The Petersburg school rejected music and metaphysics and turned towards clear and more concrete verbal expression. The futurists started a poetry of prose and revolutionary formalism. But for all their reaction, both these movements continue and even exaggerate an important feature of the symbolist poetry, the cult of form and the preference of manner to matter. The Petersburg School made itself the champion of restraint and clarity, it rejected the metaphysical style of Ivanov and endeavored to be more Latin and classical. Its patriarch is Michael Kuzmin, born 1875, whose charming Songs of Alexandria, 1906, were the first swallow of the classical spring. The leader of the movement was Nicholas Gumilov, 1886-1921, to 1921, who founded the Petersburg Guild of Poets, and gave the younger poets lessons in their craft. He was at heart a man of action. He traveled in Africa, fought with distinction in the Great War, and was executed by the Cheka in 1921 on an alleged charge of conspiring against the Soviet government. His poetry is manly and bracing, full of the romance of adventure and fighting, and of the exotic charm of tropical lands. It strikes a note rare in Russian literature, when in a poem like The Captain's he sings the praise of the great adventures of the high seas. A more delicate and refined poet is Anna Akhmatova, for the last ten years the most widely popular of all writers of Russian verse. She writes little, and her poetry displays, in the highest degree, the classical quality of restraint. Her poems are, quote-unquote, dramatic lyrics, where the substance of a novel is condensed into eight or twelve terse and compact lines. Her subject matter is ordinary human feeling, free from all metaphysical complexity. In her last work she has attained to a still severer and sterner form of expression. In a series of lyrics on the woes of her country, her style becomes truly grand in its tragic simplicity. Less famous than Akhmatova, but not less highly valued among his fellow poets, is Joseph Mandelstam, whose poems, written for the most part on historical and literary subjects, attain a beautiful oratorical sweep, which has led a critic to say that the language he uses is not really Russian, but Latin, The Futurist Movement largely belongs to post-revolutionary days and consequently falls outside the scope of this book. But its most significant representative, Vladimir Mayakovsky, born 1893, began writing in 1912. In spite of many extravagancies, his poetry, which is largely political – he is a communist – possesses great qualities of vitality and physical health. Mayakovsky is, first of all, a man with strong lungs, and his loud utterings, if not always refined, often crude and even coarse, are essentially the healthy outcome of a man with buoyant animal spirits. The symbolists who achieved so much in poetry made occasional ventures into the province of imaginative prose. But most of their stories, for instance, Brusevs, which are largely traceable to the influence of Edgar Poe, are derivative and altogether inferior to their verse. The only exceptions are Sologub, who stands apart in splendid isolation, and Belly, whose novels, together with Remizovs, may be considered as having started the modern school of Russian fiction. Sologup's prose is as beautiful as his verse and permeated with the same Manichean philosophy. His writings are all based on the essential contrast of the ideal and the real, which he is fond of symbolizing in the figures of Dulcinea and Aldonza, only in his prose the world of coarse reality and brutal action is painted with greater vividness than in his verse. Most of his short stories are tangibly symbolical. The scene is laid more or less outside time and space. For life's evil diversity is the same everywhere, and equally coarse and ugly whether it happens to affect the forms of a Russian suburb or of a medieval castle. His greatest work, the wonderful novel which bears in the English translation the somewhat inadequate name of The Little Demon, the French rendering Le Démon Mesquin is better, the Russian is Biss, assumes all the appearance of a realistic novel of provincial manners. But the mask must not deceive. It is a poetical and symbolical novel like his stories and lyrics, Written with great power and perfectly constructed, it is probably the best Russian novel since the death of Dostoevsky. Like all Sologub's work, it turns on the antithesis between beauty and thrall of reality, the boy Sasha Pylnikov, and the brutal, coarse and joyless spirit of brute reality itself in the person of the assistant headmaster Peridonov. This is a symbolical figure of enormous realistic convincingness. Peredonov is a bully who finally succumbs to a mania of persecution. His name has become a word of the language to designate the joyless evil of the narrow and dark mind. A more bewildering production is the romantic trilogy The Created Legend, or, more exactly, as the Russian participle is imperfective, the legend in process of creation, with the figure of Trirodov, Satanist and Socialist, who is for Sologub the ideal priest of Dulcinea. The second and third parts of the trilogy, Queen Ortruda and Smoke and Ashes, in which the scene is shifted to the imaginary kingdom of the United Islands, belong to Sologub's most charming work, and may be read for the interest of the romantic story, even apart from the hidden meaning, which may not be to the taste of all readers. It is the most attractively romantic of Russian novels, and very unlike their common run. The novel cannot exist divorced from life, and the quote-unquote metaphysical novel Outside Space and Time whether it stands on the low level of Andreev and Artsybashev, or on the very high level of Sologub, was doomed to be superseded by a new realism. This new realism is very unlike the old one, for, first of all, it has drunk deep of the art of the symbolists, or rather breezed the air infected by its vapors. It is miles away from the elaborately artless, in reality, supremely artistic, simplicity of Turgenev, Tolstoy, or even Chekhov. Like contemporary poetry, it is more concerned with manner than matter, and though it deals with actual life, it approaches it in another spirit. It does not aim at the exact reproduction of reality, still less of the true proportions of reality it uses the material of reality for its own constructions which may be mellow or grotesque but which are primarily meant to be expressive and pregnant the german term of expressionism may be justly applied to this russian school though it has little in common with the practice of the german expressionists the history of this new style begins in the year 1909 when it produced its first two masterpieces, The Silver Dove of Belly and Remizov's The Story of Ivan Simonovich Stratilatov. Belly's novel is the story of a Russian intelligent who comes under the influence of a sect of mystics. The story is told with great skill and written in a style rich and suggestive and singularly varied. In the humorous parts, it is strikingly reminiscent of Gogol. Its great achievement lies in the powerful inner rhythm, which carries on the whole story towards the tragic end of the hero and the trap laid for him by the sectarians. Bailey's other two novels, Petersburg and Kotik Litaev, the one, a rhythmical symphony on a political theme, the other, an exaggeratedly subtle story of a childhood, mark a falling off. The rhythmical element becomes crude and formal, and the other gets entangled in the meshes of his all too elaborate proceedings. They are failures, but failures of genius. The idea of Petersburg, the incarnation of mathematical nihilism, has exercised a powerful influence on the Russian imagination. Bely's most accessible and least difficult prose work is his Reminiscences of Bloch, which are full of an extraordinary original humor and vividly grotesque pictures of Russian literary men. Alexey Remizov, born 1877, is a very complex writer, whose versatility is great, but, under all its forms, his unmistakable and charming personality is strikingly apparent. He has created an entirely fresh style of Russian prose, based not on the logic of written language, but on the system of intonations of living speech. He has succeeded in giving the Russian language all its natural and illogical freedom, which even in the raciest of 19th-century writers is covered by a veneer of classical grammar. His masters are Dostoevsky, Gogol and Liskov. It is impossible here to give any detailed account of his many-sided activity, of his fairy tales, of his stories from the Apocrypha, of his charming prose poems on folklore subjects, of his wonderful dreams, and his no less wonderful memoir writings. But the story of Stratilatov and the other stories of this kind were great literary events which created a new school. The essential feature of these stories is a new method of constructing the story. Its movement is not along a line of time, but towards a single point. It is like the unraveling of a ball of silk. These concentric stories have for their center a human soul and for their periphery the grotesque milieu of an old-world Russian country town. The provincial environment, the psychocentric construction, the selection of grotesque detail, the purity and raciness of language, and a profound human sympathy, not wistfully mellow as in Chekhov, but scorchingly intense, as in Dostoevsky, are the essential features of these stories. They soon began to be imitated and are still imitated in increasingly high proportions. But most of Remizov's followers have only been able to imitate the grotesqueness of the master, but not his art of construction, nor his Russian, nor his human inspiration. The best known of these neorealists is Alexey Nikolaevich Tolstoy, born 1882, who possesses a wonderful gift of making his characters alive, but no gift of telling a story. The extreme expression of the grotesque tendency is Eugene Zamatin, who has been the medium of transmitting Remizov's influence to a whole school of young writers. In Zamyatin, the expressionist method becomes a mosaic of more or less expressive and striking detail without any artistic unity. The best of Remizov's followers is Michael Prishvin, who is the only one to rival the master in his command of Russian. Unhappily, this excellent writer has written very little, and most of that is rather descriptive journalism than fiction but at least one of his stories is a veritable masterpiece of great originality and singular beauty. This is The Beast of Kritoyarsk 1914, the story of a dog, one of the very few really good animal stories in the language. End of section 8 End of modern Russian literature by D. S. Mirsky